Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the $500 pandemic distancing tickets are back. Hamilton City Council voted yesterday to reinstate that bylaw. Paul Johnson from the city is going to talk to us about that. Education Minister Stephen Lecce made another education announcement. Did the announcement satisfy and smooth out some of the rough parts? Spoiler alert, no. We'll get all the details on that. And Trump is using some of his favorite attack tricks, labeling Kamala Harris as nasty and bringing up the old birther conspiracy theory. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. A note here from Hamilton City Council meeting yesterday. They have uh, resurrected the physical distancing bylaw, which lapsed, of course, at the end of July. Uh, and uh, it's a $500 fine. Uh, you could be subject to that if you get too close to somebody. And bylaw uh, people will be enforcing that. To give us some uh, in- details about this, uh, we're pleased to welcome to- back to the program Paul Johnson, who is the Director of Emergency Services and the Emergency Center here for the City of Hamilton during COVID. Paul, thanks for the time and a busy day. I'm glad you could join us today. Oh, glad to be joining you, Bill. Wonder, I, I wondered when this thing, uh, I guess, came to pass, because there was a sunset clause on this on July 31st for the original bylaw. Uh, it was only a matter of time until you resurrected this, because we're not out of the woods yet. Is, is that a fair assessment? It is, and it's, it's why the conversation took place about uh, uh, putting back in place of bylaws. So, you know, in the province, in, in, in many ways, lifted the, the emergency declaration. They did pass legislation that, that has some again, orders in place provincially and some protections in place. And there are some there for particularly indoor spaces, but it wasn't comprehensive enough uh, to cover all of the spaces that we think, um, you know, we just need to have some ability to enforce if necessary. And those would include things like beaches and outdoor gatherings. So those uh, those weren't covered in, in what the province was moving forward with after July. And so, uh, you know, I think it was our analysis of staff and, and as you can tell, uh, council agreed with us that um, uh, we need this as part of our toolkit. And again, for the public, uh, not to, to fear that we're going on a crusade to find people who are less than two meters apart from one another. This is a, a piece that's there to ensure that we can have some degree of enforcement around compliance, because as you and I have talked about for five and a half months now, um, one of the, the strongest ways we have to protect the spread of this virus is that physical separation. And if you are not in your tight social circle of up to 10 people, uh, you need to keep that distance. It's the best way. And then, of course, we get into, if you can't, uh, the masking and all the rest. So we feel it's important. Uh, you know, it's not a tool that we want to use all the time, but it is a tool that is there for people who, who just choose to ignore and, and quite frankly, uh, want to, for whatever reason, uh, be obstinate about the, uh, uh, the real impact that this virus can have. Paul, since we've had the, the warm weather for quite a long time now, you've had an, an opportunity, obviously, to check some stats on this. Are we behaving ourselves? Are we, are we paying attention to, to that social distancing? We, we are overall. Uh, I think what we're seeing now is that uh, uh, gatherings uh, of, of whether they're private parties, you know, people getting together and having uh, parties uh, could be in the backyard, could even be indoors, uh, or gatherings at um, at patios and bars and indoors and things. There are a few of these things that are happening that are causing our, our numbers to tick up just a little bit. Now in Hamilton, that little bit is you know two or three instead of one or two. Um, but nonetheless, we're we're always concerned when there's an upward pressure, and it is being linked back to some of these social activities that a we've been kept away from for so long that we're trying to get you know people are getting back into uh, and be just a little bit of that fatigue of 
of, um, of, of all of these uh, things. And we need to remind people that we're going to live with COVID-19 until there's a broad immunization strategy. And, you know, we need to take some of these fairly straightforward measures uh, uh, to be to be appropriate. So message is vast majority getting it. Our numbers continue to reflect that, but where we are seeing some of the change and it is driving a little bit of an uptick uh, in our numbers is, uh, is some of these socialization uh, pieces. And people were concerned about that. You know, Bill, when we opened restaurants and, and patios as a province, uh, people were concerned and bars. And then even the province put in some slightly stricter regulations uh, just after that stage three reopening to say, you know what, we need to keep people seated. We need to keep that. We need to do everything in our power to ensure that people are uh, keeping that distance and not having these milling about things that uh, unfortunately we're seeing in photos on social media all the time. The odd time I have been in a place, whether it's a grocery store, pharmacy, or whatever the case may be, uh, I find a lot of the time, Paul, if somebody is infringing upon that 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 era, that's that era, the, a lot of the time the people in front of them will say, "Could you back off a little bit, please?" I mean, we're all aware of it, and I think we all understand why we're doing it. We are, and and where I I would say that we are doing really really well is those those retail places, the you know whether it's the the supermarkets, whether it's small retail, whether it's malls, things like that, it's going really well. I think the areas of concern and the areas, quite frankly, where we've had to do some proactive work uh, is more of those social settings, bars, restaurants, uh, and even in, in private settings uh, where people are getting together, where, you know, you, you, you're having fun, you're enjoying each other's company. Um, in certain establishments, you're, you're, you're drinking alcohol and, and that keeping that two meters and doing all those things that we do really well in the grocery store, uh, they just tend to, to, to lapse a little bit. And that's, uh, you know, what we're trying to encourage people to continue to remember. And, and the bylaws, you know, we can't be everywhere all the time, but the bylaw does allow us, if people are just choosing to blatantly ignore it, to say, actually, we do have a bit of a hammer here that we can use. I, I want to be clear on this. I, I think the idea of a public spaces, I think, is pretty much undertaken. I mean, if you see, you know, 100 people gathered at Confederation Park or down on the, uh, the waterfront, you're going to respond. I, I get that. But but if somebody sees, hey, you know what, my neighbor got he's got about a hundred people in the backyard and they're not social distancing. Do you and if they're legitimately concerned about that, they're just not trying to you know play hardball with the neighbor. Uh, will bylaw respond to that if that person calls and says I'm concerned about what's going on next door? Yes, uh, we will, and we encourage that to happen. Um, one of the areas that uh, not only in our uh, in our city but in other jurisdictions are these uh, uh, what we call private events, but it could be family or friend events that are going on and. And they can be, um, you know, we're trying to also let people know they can be small in number. I think, you know, the, uh, there was one in, in Peel Region, I think, that was just, you know, huge. They had, you know, valet parking, and it was just this dramatic thing, and people go, oh, yeah, I get it, that's bad. Well, it's also having 20 people over in the backyard, um, and having a pool party and a barbecue, and just people, again, in, the, in having fun and being together, just, you know, not following these, these good public health measures. So, um, you know, we're trying not to have this be a regime of people spying on each other and all the rest, but we are trying to let the public know that uh, whatever the size of gathering is, whether it's in your house or around your house, just outside your house, or whether it's in a public space, um, we need to be very cognizant of, of those measures that help protect us from the spread of this virus. And so when people have real concern, absolutely call the city. And, um, you know, between our bylaw and our police that we back each other up and and we can uh, we can come and take a, a peek at that because um, you know this is all about making sure we don't have those outbreaks that can happen. And then of course we trace everybody, and it just has a, a knock-on effect. 
and it can very quickly grow to something that we don't want to see in this community. Okay, let's use my, my house party example again. Uh, so bylaw or police, depending on, I guess, who's available at the time and what time of day it is, we'll, may respond to that. Uh, who's culpable here? Is it the, the address or is it everybody that's there? No, it could be both. So uh, there's provisions to both um, lay fines to individuals. And, and if it's the case where it really seems to be an individual or a couple that are really, you know, doing, you know, being not following the rules, and that's what we do. But there's also, uh, you know, the responsibility of the business owner, uh, the the person hosting the event, whether it's private or in a business. So there are responsibilities for those that are gathering people together, whether that's a private setting, whether that's in a, a public uh, space or a, a commercial space. And then there is an individual responsibility. And, and that's very much how all of these things are being laid out, is that we all have a role to play. So it is not simply the grocery store that has to ensure everything. We have also a personal responsibility to do the kinds of things you talked about, you know, respect people's space. And if somebody says, hey, you know, I think you're a little too close or can you can you wait to get that thing till I'm done looking and (laughs) move on? Um, We have that individual responsibility. But when it's pretty clear that the people that have organized it or the people that are running uh, or own the space aren't complying either or aren't encouraging people to comply or are posting the right signs uh, then we can take action and the first three weeks of our of our mask bylaw for instance uh, we didn't enforce in terms of fines it was all about education and a lot of times it was working with businesses to say hey you just don't have enough signs you know where's that sign right at the front that says you know you need to wear a mask to enter and and working with people around it to get the appropriate stuff in place that's now over too, so we're out now, and if people are repeat offenders and just not getting the message, then uh, they'll be laying fines for masking in indoor public spaces, and also uh, now we have the ability to, to fine if people are not keeping that physical distance. But the good news is our history in Hamilton over the last five and a half months has been uh, most people are complying with these uh, regulations, no need to get fines. Um, uh, this is here for those that uh, just choose to ignore it. Uh- is the first order of business when and when somebody shows up to to ask them to break it up, or do they just start writing tickets? Uh, it's to educate. Uh, it's not always about breaking up because, uh, of course, there are you know there are size limits, and people may be within the size limits. But it is to say, uh, this is too many people in too small a space, or you are not following this. And and we've had occasions along the way um, from the start of the pandemic where. Uh, we go in and, and it's a conversation and people quickly comply and they, yeah, you're, yeah, we get it and, and away we go. Um, so our, our goal is not to walk in. It's education. It really is. Uh, and, and the other thing is just handing out tickets isn't going to stop the spread. We need to get people physically distanced. So, uh, you know, taking the ticket and saying, I don't care and then continuing on with the activity is, is not what we're after here. It's about that education piece. So, um, you know, we use the tickets only when we have to. And only when it's become very clear that one of two things is occurring, uh, repeat offenses in terms of maybe businesses or, or, or people, I suppose, uh, where clearly they're just ignoring the rules um, or when it's egregious and, and it's just too obvious that uh, this shouldn't have happened. The rest of the time, you know, many people are happy to hear the information and they're happy to comply. And sometimes, you know, all humans are, are, are fallible and we just realize, yeah, you know what, you're right. And we just, we just got into something and we were, um, you know, we're just not following the rules correctly.
Uh, you mentioned masks a minute ago. We should probably remind our listeners. I know with the focus of our discussion so far this morning has been about you know the social distancing because that's what council dealt with yesterday. But there is also a mask bylaw that's uh, that's in, uh, in play uh, that has not expired yet. That's still very much in play. Uh, how's the enforcement on that going, and how's the the compliance with that? So the compliance we're hearing anecdotally is very good, and and I can say from my own experience, uh, you know, we're all out more and, and in spaces more. And, and I have found a, a very high level of, of compliance. So I don't have uh, handy any of the, the stats from this week. Of course, this was the first week we started to enforce. So we'll, we'll know some more at the end of the week in terms of those details. But I expect that, that it, uh, it will continue to be as it is, which is a, a very good adherence to it. People seem to be getting the message. And the three weeks we used, <clears throat> excuse me, to, uh, to, to educate uh, businesses and educate public uh, space operators about what it meant and answer lots of questions about it uh, was, was, was really good. So, again, pleased with Hamilton's response to it. And, uh, as I say, my own uh, visual experience in terms of the places that I go is that uh, I, I can very rarely see anybody without a mask. And I make the assumption when I do see the rare person without a mask that uh, they have a reason for that. And, and uh, life goes on because, of course, we... We do realize that for some, a small number of people in our community, that mask wearing is not appropriate, whether that's by age or whether that's by medical condition, and uh, we respect that. Yeah, I've, I've uh, had the same experience just about every place I've been, uh, grocery stores, or places like that. There's, I, I'd say about 99.9% compliance with that. Uh, and you always have to wonder about the, the one or two that you might see that don't have it. Uh, do those people actually have to prove something? I mean, if somebody from, from that store or restaurant or whatever says, I, I'm sorry, I can't serve you unless you have a mask. Well, oh, I've got asthma or something. I mean, oftentimes, you know, the, if there is a physical concern about this, it's not going to be visible enough in, in many cases. Right. And in the case of the Hamilton bylaw, and, and I say that about the Hamilton bylaw because there are other entities I hear today about transportation and, and airlines and things demanding that people be able to prove that they don't need a mask. In Hamilton, you don't need to do that. There is no need to carry something with you. It is a declaration. And for businesses or, or those that run public uh, indoor public spaces, uh, also, the, the bylaws worded very much that it's about taking every reasonable effort. So again, that owner doesn't need to uh, to worry that if they've asked and, and probed a little bit as to why somebody couldn't wear a mask and that person says, I have a medical condition, I, I can't wear a mask, that, that that's taking the efforts that we expect under our bylaws. So we are not asking uh, those who, who own or operate these spaces uh, to, to probe into health issues, nor are we asking people to feel that they have to bring some medical documentation. A, that's a huge invasion of privacy, and, and B, that um, you know, we just really hope that isn't necessary moving forward. And it's the same with children. We recognize a lot of discretion for those under two, not required anyways. And for children between, you know, two and five years old, uh, it's difficult sometimes for them to keep masks on. They may just be in one of those moods where it's like, no, I'm not having a mask on mom or dad. And, um, and so the answer are to you, that is we get it. So Are you so suggesting children can be obstinate? Is that what you're telling me, Paul? Every once in a while. <laughs> I have a five-year-old nephew, and every once in a while, even with Uncle Paul, he's a little obstinate. But most of the time, they're great. And, and you know, we're, we're using this bill as very much the way it's intended. And so far, I am... I am pleased, and I know some people will probably email in and say, yeah, you know, but I went to this place and it wasn't great. Uh, keep feeding that into the city so we know and we can be proactive in certain cases. 
But as I say, listening and, and if it was a real problem, it would have hit the desk, my desk already. So I think what we're seeing is broadly speaking, uh, people have got the, uh, got the message that if you're going indoors, uh, wear a mask and, uh, and are doing so with, um, uh, with their own compliance and with their, and really not arguing about it and not being, uh, being upset about it. They understand why we're doing it. And that's the important thing. My mask protects you. Your mask protects me. And I think that's, that's sort of the way we need to, live in our communities for the foreseeable future. Exactly. And, and you're right. I think everybody understands that. I mean, there's that one tragic incident in Minden a couple of weeks ago where the guy, somebody went off the deep end, sadly, and it ended in a tragic situation. But uh, more often than not, I think people are, are complying because they understand the, the reality here. Paul, always a pleasure. Have a great weekend, and uh, we'll talk again soon. You too, Bill. Thanks, and stay safe. You betcha. Paul Johnson, Director of Emergency Services for the City of Hamilton during the COVID crisis. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We spent a lot of time over the last couple of weeks talking about the uh, provincial government's rollout plan for getting back to school. And uh, there's a lot of things concerning about this. And yesterday afternoon, uh, Education Minister Stephen Lecce came out with, he said, with some revisions to this, which was supposed to address some of those shortcomings. Uh, Global News' Brianna Carnegie was there, and uh, this is her report. Ontario is putting $50 million towards improving school ventilation systems. This will give peace of mind that the air our children are breathing is safe and that these upgrades can commence immediately. Education Minister Stephen Lecce also announced standards for remote learning, coupled with an $18 million investment. Parents and students will now have a clear, consistent and predictable standard to support them in their remote learning for those parents that choose that in Ontario. Boards can now also dip further into their reserves to use community spaces or hire extra staff to help with physical distancing. But critics like the NDP say this is a non-announcement that won't save kids from crowded classrooms. Brianna Carnegie, Global News. So, uh, with these new revisions, I use the term advisedly, is everything addressed? Are we going to go back to school after Labor Day and everything's going to be happy? Uh, I don't think so. There's already been a lot of reaction to this. I want to bring Harvey Bischoff into the conversation. Harvey, of course, is the president of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation. Harvey, glad you could join us today. Thanks for the time. And thank you for having me on, Bill. appreciate it. Were you re- impressed with Mr. Lecce's announcement yesterday? You, you may be shocked to hear that, uh, no, I was. I, I remained entirely unimpressed. Um, the, the substance of it, uh, you know, if we want smaller class sizes with appropriate room for physical distancing, then the Ministry of, of Education ought to direct and fund that. And we've already heard from the largest school board in the province that their reserves are, are you know, earmarked for uh, future obligations. So they won't have any significant money to put towards this. Um, we'll see how that plays out amongst the other school boards. It doesn't come close to what's required. And, you know, that's the substantive part. And in terms of, of the other things that he had to say, um, I mean, he said things that were simply untrue. And he accused, at one point he claimed that that uh, we were inflexible and that teachers would walk out of classrooms with students in them, leaving them in an unsafe position uh, if they bumped up against, uh, you know, a workload parameter in their collective agreement, it's an outrageous accusation. It, it infuriates me on behalf of my members. Um, and, and you know, uh, this is just not the time for that kind of divisive politics. Well, I've, I've, I heard that. I was watching it yesterday afternoon, as you were, I'm sure. And uh, I thought... I talked to a lot of union leaders, talked to a lot of teachers, and, and uh, nobody's ever mentioned anything about a walkout, so I don't know where that's coming from. Well, he, he claimed that, you know, if we get to the end of our, our prescribed workload in a day, that, that you know, teachers would, would simply leave a classroom with students sitting in it. it. It is, I mean, 
look, this, this is a man who knows nothing about publicly funded education um, and, and knows nothing about how to build relationships in order to have a, a you know, constructive input going forward. Let me ask you something. I'm, I'm not an engineer, but I've, you know, I've been a homeowner for a number of years. I, I don't know what Mr. Lecce's situation is uh, vis-a-vis knowing about these sorts of things. But one of the promises he made, because we raised some concerns, as a lot of other people did, is about the air circulation through a lot of these older schools, which is in many cases non-existent. And he says, well, the money's going to be there. Does he know how much it costs to replace an HVAC system? And does he know how many ancient schools, outdated schools, are around in Ontario? Uh, boy, I, I couldn't speak for what he knows or doesn't know, but I mean, I've well, you do. That he knows, <laughs> you know it. That he knows a great deal. Well, yeah, I'll put it into context for you in a second. Um, you know, I, I don't think he knows very much about publicly funded education in Ontario. But here's the context: school boards right now spend about 1.4 billion dollars a year on upgrades to things like their HVAC systems. He's going to add to that three and a half percent in the current funding. Schools are have a sixteen billion dollar um, repair backlog, so this doesn't even come close to keeping up, let alone you know catching up and getting ahead in the midst of a pandemic. So that fifty million dollars, I know that's a lot of money to you and me, but in terms of uh, the publicly funded education system and thousands of schools in the province, it's it's a drop in the bucket. Well, what's going to happen in a situation like that? <laughs> Uh, anybody who's had to buy one of these or have their repaired in the, even in their own home, uh, the ones in the schools, by the way, it's a bigger building. They're a lot more expensive than that. Uh, but when you allocate that as per school that probably needs this stuff, Harvey, uh, that might get them a new filter on the air conditioner. That's about it. You're not going to be able to replace the system or even fix it. I agree. And I mean, somebody suggested to me it may uh, supply Glade plugins for all the classrooms in the <laughs> province, but I'm not sure that it's going to go much further than that. Uh, here's, here's another question for you. Uh, and again, I wrote this down yesterday as I was listening to Mr. Lecce. Why is it that in the, in the province of Ontario right now, uh, and this is the law, according to, you know, the Ford government, uh, if, if a, a 12 or 14 year old wants to go into McDonald's, they have to adhere to social distancing, wait in line with the proper distance until it's their turn, and then obviously clear out that as, as we all have to do. But once they walk into the front door of the school, there's no social distancing. If you want to do it, that's fine, but it's, it's really kind of up to the school to do that. Why is, why is that not being enforced in the schools? Why did they just ignore that aspect of it? And it's a mystery to me. There seems to be a kind of magical thinking going on here where every other public space in the province requires room for uh, physical distancing. And that means that, you know, you're lining up outside the grocery store so that they can limit the number of people inside. Um, You're required to keep two meters apart. But that doesn't apply to classrooms. It doesn't apply to uh, high school classrooms. It doesn't apply to elementary classrooms, and in under grade four, they're not even going to have masks on, according to this plan. Um, so it's it's hugely problematic. And not all the boards in the province are so-called designated boards. So in non-designated boards, there will be classes of 30 in, in high school, of 30, 33, 35 students, um, all returning and we have high schools in some of these non-designated boards. You know, not far from, from you there in Brantford, we have two high schools with about 1,500 students in them. How, you know, how is that safe? Uh, why it, in high schools can we contradict all the rules that exist for every other public space in the province? 
I, I, I'm wondering. I mean, are they adhering to Donald Trump's assertion that kids are immune to this, which, which is baloney? We know that, but I, I just don't understand that. Uh, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, you know, back in March they decided, okay, this is not a safe situation in our safe environment for kids. We got to shut this down, and and we all know what happened as a result. What, what's different now, Harvey? What's different? I mean, the, the the virus is still there. There is no vaccine yet. So why all of a sudden is it okay to put those 25 or 35 or even 40 kids in the same classroom again? And, and it simply isn't. I, I appreciate the pressure to get face-to-face learning uh, up and running again. I mean, it, it is the best way to teach the vast majority of kids, no question about that. And no question, if the economy is going to get running on all cylinders again, parents need to be able to go back to work. And I understand that. Um, but you can't do that within limited fiscal parameters that don't allow us to meet the basic public health rules. And why, you know, why high schools should be treated differently than every other public space, I still don't understand and nobody has explained. Well, and again, a couple of the other things that uh, the boxes that he thinks he's checked in situations like this is this money that he's going to allocate to the certain boards or basically say to the boards, if you want more teachers, go hire them yourself uh, and you use up all your reserves, many of which, by the way, I talked to a couple of people of this in town yesterday, uh, and they're saying, look, that money was earmarked for some of the repairs that we were supposed to do that got canceled because Ford cut all the funding uh, you know, from, from that program as soon as he got elected. So he said, she says, you know, we can't spend the money twice. What's going to happen? And where are you going to find those teachers between now and Labor Day? Or where are you going to find the extra space? He said, if you want to have social distancing, you can find other space for classrooms. Where are you going to find that? And how are you going to retrofit it for school in the next two weeks? I, I don't, I'm not sure of the time frame here, and I don't understand what he's envisioning. It's just, and I don't know that he's envisioning anything in particular. It's just another abdication of responsibility by the Ministry of Education, by the minister himself, down to school boards, creating political insulation for himself. He's now got somebody he can point the finger at when he has not himself taken responsibility for the health and safety of students and educators. You know, it reminded me very much, and again, I hate drawing analogies with Donald Trump, but it just, you know, if the shoe fits. Uh, when Trump, in, at the height of this back in the early springtime, simply said, not my fault, it's up to the governors to do all this. You guys, blame the, now, and the, which gave him somebody to blame. And Mr. Lecce seemed to be doing the same thing yesterday. I'm, a, I'm allowing the boards to spend all of the money that they've been saving up to put uh, you know, in, into their boards in different schools. Uh, so now all of a sudden, if there's a shortcoming or if there's an outbreak, he's going to blame the boards and simply say, you know, you, you guys just didn't do enough. It's but it's but the responsibility, the for instance, yeah. the responsibility is the provinces. That education is their responsibility. Absolutely, and and he's abdicated that responsibility from the outset when he when he directed boards to come up with plans with insufficient guidance from the province. Boards are scrambling; um, they're still scrambling. It's chaos. Uh, parents are in an understandable state of panic right now as they try to decide what to do with their with their children and. Let's face it, only certain parents have the ability to make the decision to keep their children at home. Others have financial pressures that make that simply impossible. And so we just exacerbate the inequities um, that are already significant in our our system, uh, and and that's no solution. I, I, and again, I'm, I'm trying to envision exactly what's going to happen after Labor Day if, if nothing is done about this. Uh, and there's the, the, obviously the high school situation with the secondary school, and I'll, I'll focus on that. But I, even for the elementary schools, as we talked about, I did a segment on AM640 last night, our sister station in Toronto. 
And I said, hand washing and social distancing are the two pillars that our health officials are telling us we need to do. How are kids going to wash their hands in school? Is there going to be a steady stream to the girls and boys' washrooms all day long? You're going to line up, and as soon as you get out of the line, it's probably your time to go back again. What about sanitizing the equipment and the, and the desks and everything? When's that going to happen? How often is that going to happen? And, and there's no reason to believe that's going to happen often enough. I mean, in our, we've seen that the staffing, the additional staffing money they're providing for custodians and cleaners doesn't come close to the need. Um, will not allow them to even meet the protocols that the government itself has issued in terms of uh, sanitizing uh, physical spaces. Uh, so they're, you know, the risks that they're taking are just enormous and not supportable. You know, I mean, there is no risk-free return to school, but there's also no, you know, it, 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 there's risk involved in leaving kids at home, too. They, uh, uh, there's a developmental risk, there's an educational risk, a social-emotional risk, and I appreciate all of that. But they haven't come close to mitigating the pandemic risks in the return to face-to-face education that they should have. I mean, the sanitization is very important. If anybody who has been to a store in the last six months knows that, first of all, you have to stand in line, social distance from the person who's in front of you. And before you're allowed to go to the cashier, they have to scrub that place down from the last person that used it. Uh, it, it but they're, they're not going to do that in schools. Uh, and, you know, to the high school situation, anybody, anybody ever been in a, in a high school hallway when sh- classes are changing? Uh, there's no social distancing going to be happening there. And what happens if your son or daughter goes into the next class, whether it's history or math or whatever, uh, and if the person that was sitting at that desk in the last period is is testing positive or has the, the symptoms, you're, you're opening that child up to, to having spread the virus. I mean, there just doesn't seem to be any forethought here. No, and then they talk about having cohorts of 100 students. It's a meaningless number. If you track those 100 stu- students, their contacts become... Uh, you know, virtually infinite. There is no closed circle around a hundred students, and so that what that means is we've just blown the doors wide open on uh, you know potential viral spread, and we've seen in other jurisdictions around the world that there have been significant outbreaks in schools, um, and it seems that these guys are just willing to roll the dice on that. And I know that uh, I guess to give us some sense of assurance, uh, they tried to the Ontario Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Williams was there with Mr. Lecce yesterday, uh, giving us his assurance that he wouldn't allow this to happen if he didn't think everything was going to be fine, that it's not perfect, but the risk is very, very, very low. And I just reminded our listeners, <laughs> I said, the Medical Officer of Health in Florida and Texas and Alabama and Georgia and Arizona all said the same thing, too, when they were reopening with all, all these precautions, and how'd that work out? Yeah, and, and here's the thing, like the science is not settled. So he has a scientific opinion, and I'm, you know, I, I don't question his integrity or anything. But with unsettled science, then the obligation is to go to the precautionary principle and put in place every reasonable precaution under the circumstances. And they have decided not to do that. When the sick kids report, the very experts they claim to be listening to said the priority strategy for safe return is is physical distancing meaning smaller uh, you know fewer students in class they they ignored the priority strategy so they are absolutely not following the precautionary principle and putting in place every reasonable measure and and you know what we're all trying to play ball here harvey i mean and and look at i think i told you one of our last conversations i mean i'm broadcasting from home as, as a lot of us are these days and so this has been the, my my new reality for the last 6 months or so 
Uh, and I'm meeting a whole bunch of people in my neighborhood right across the road. There's two families, both mom, uh, husband and wife are teachers. So I'm talking to these people consistently. They're dying to get back to work. I mean, you know, they, they love their job. They love what they're doing. But they want to make sure that it's a safe environment. That's all there is to it. I mean, that's, that's really what we're asking. This is not a union versus government thing. This is a public safety issue. It, um, I was horrified yesterday see, to see the minister painted as as us being oppositional and so forth, when the reality is on March the 12th, the day the school closures were announced, I sent him a letter saying, we stand committed to cooperating with you to make um, things as, as safe and effective as we can under these uh, very difficult circumstances. Since then, we've had no meaningful consultation. Their return to school plan bears our imprint on not one single aspect of it. They have not taken our advice on anything. And then he wants to turn around and blame us for his own incompetence. It's, it's appalling. Well, we had a discussion with the Director of Education for the Hamilton Board here, Mr. Figueroa, uh, just earlier this week. And this is before even these the latest uh, things from Mr. Lecce were announced. And he gave us a rundown at their board meeting on Monday evening of this past week. Uh, they, they, they crunched the numbers and said, here's how much it's going to cost us for doing the social distancing that we think we should be doing. And here's how much it's going to cost us to bring on the, the extra teachers that we're going to need. And it's into the millions and millions of dollars. Where are they going to get that money? And, and it, clearly that is the most significant um, parameter that this government is looking at is is that bottom line, which I think is short-sighted, because if parents don't have confidence to send their kids back to school, they won't re-engage in the economy. Um, and, and if there's a viral outbreak uh, that, that's centered on a, on a school and results in a community shutdown again and business shutdown, they are being penny-wise pound-foolish again, uh, which is something we've come to expect from this government. Well, and I raised that question with Mr. Figueroa, and I'll ask you the very same thing. In your opinion, based on what you've seen from Mr. Lecce so far, even with these quote-unquote revisions, is this the safest way to do this, or is it the cheapest way to do this? It is ab- absolutely doesn't meet the safety requirements. It falls short in very many aspects. Um, you know, maybe it's not the absolute cheapest, uh, but it doesn't come near to meeting the need for resources that they that they should be putting in in order to have a, both a safe and effective return to school. Harvey, as always, thanks so much for the time. Uh, This is obviously an issue that's not going to go away. Uh, We'll talk again soon, I'm sure. Thanks again. Yeah, thank you, Bill. Take care. Harvey Bischoff, president of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation, uh, raising, I think, some very legitimate concerns about the environment that we're going to be sending our kids back into uh, just after Labor Day. As I mentioned in my commentary earlier this morning, uh, there are some parts of the plan I think are okay. Some of the uh, offline learning and things like that, good, good idea. But let's get this right. And, you know, where is it carved in stone that they have to go to school right after Labor Day? Other jurisdictions have looked at what's happened and, and, and seen some of the spikes that have happened and said, whoa, whoa, let's delay the start of the school year to make sure that we cross all the T's and dot all the I's here, make sure that we got everything going. We're not ready yet here in Ontario. It's clear. So why are we moving forward until we get all these things addressed? It's not a rhetorical question. It's a safety issue. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The U.S. presidential election, of course, had a lot of twists and turns this past week. Uh, Joe Biden announcing Kamala Harris as his running mate. She, uh, of course, if the Biden team is successful, she will be the vice president of the United States. Uh, we can talk about the impact that could have. But uh, in answer to that, 
I only took a couple of seconds for Donald Trump to respond to that on Twitter, but he's pulled out an old argument right now. Remember the birther argument, trying to claim that Barack Obama was not even an American citizen and therefore not qualified to run for president? Well, he's uh, done the same thing and applying it to Kamala Harris. Andy Field reports. An article questioning Senator Kamala Harris's U.S. citizenship claims that even though she was born in the U.S., her parents weren't legal residents, so perhaps she isn't either. The Constitution says she is. The president's take? The lawyer that wrote that piece is a very highly qualified, very talented lawyer. I have no idea if that's right. Kamala Harris was born in Oakland, California. Andy Field, ABC News, Washington. Thank you for that report, Andy. Of course, uh, Trump also said that uh, wacky doctor that said you don't need to wear face masks and COVID doesn't exist uh, was also, in his mind, highly qualified. I want to bring Laura Babcock into the conversation, president of Power Group. Laura, always a pleasure. How are you doing today? I'm well, thank you, Bill. Uh, your thoughts on, on what's happened. Let's let's start at the beginning of the week, and let's start with the announcement of Kamala Harris, and then we'll work up to, to Trump's response to this. I think Kamala Harris was the best choice. I've personally been on the Biden-Harris ticket bandwagon for a long time in terms of the best possible presidential ticket to combat Donald Trump. There's such contrast between, of course, Biden's empathy we've spoken about in the past to Trump's more cavalier and callous way of approaching politics and governing. Uh, But then you have Kamala Harris, and she is someone who has made it entirely on her own. She rose up uh, through the ranks of law because she wanted to fix the system. She has had, you know, various, um, she's had a track record of, of course, a lot of progressive initiatives, but also she has had some criticism about being too tough on crime and too tough on certain populations at points in her career. So she has really been vetted. She has really been in the public eye for a very long time. And we've seen the Republicans trying very hard to make the argument that that Biden is really going to be just a puppet of the radical left. Uh, he's just going to, you know, fall into the hands of, you know, their, their favorite people they bring out, like AOC and other more progressive members of Congress. And so by actually having Kamala Harris, who by no means is a radical left, uh, because of the history and her track record and her legal work, uh, it just takes that argument and it just puts it away. And the American people don't think for one second that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are a radical left ticket. So it was very smart and strategic for Biden to pick somebody as accomplished as her, somebody who clearly has a record of that people can scrutinize and don't fall into sort of these fear-based theories or attempts to paint her as something she isn't. But of course, also extremely important that she is a person of color, that she does have both South Asian heritage and she comes from Jamaica. Her father's from Jamaica. Her mother is from India. The fact that she is a racialized candidate, a woman in this, we've seen two other women be on vice presidential tickets before, Bill, as you know, but Mm -hmm. never one who is racialized, never one who represents those different backgrounds and has such a broad appeal. I was just watching some coverage of Kamala's Uh, of the announcement from Indian television, and they see her, if she becomes the vice president, as possibly signaling the next new America to the world. So I think we can't underscore how significant she is as a pick. And may I just say, you know, politics is about money. So beyond all of that, Bill, the fact that they had their single biggest fundraising day, $26 million came in to the Biden campaign in the 24 hours after making the announcement, that is an undeniable metric that she is widely expected is a very good choice. I was just going to ask you, does Maz want to get in on the conversation here? I heard him a second ago. 
He's outside now. But <laughs> okay, Maz, of course, is is uh, Laura's uh, golden doodle, gorgeous dog, uh, and, and very opinionated too. As I don't know where he gets that from, but anyway. Uh, <laughs> The other element to this, too, and I, I heard Ari mention this on MSNBC, uh, Ari Melbourne uh, the other night, is uh, quite aside from that, and, and those are all very valid qualifications, uh, politics is a blood sport. And Kamala Harris has proven over the years that not, she can not only take a punch, but she can land a punch, too, and she's shown us that already. Well, she was fantastic. I mean, she really came onto my radar watching the various Senate hearings, especially the Judge Kavanaugh hearing. She is extremely good at a very incisive, very controlled way of prosecuting the case, of questioning a witness. We saw Bill Barr, the attorney general, you know, unable to answer her, tripping all over the place. We saw Jeff Sessions say, you're going too fast. You're confusing me. Uh, You know, he couldn't handle her cross-examination. So she is just somebody who has shown that not only can she handle, if you will, going up against the big tough people, you know, she's she's sort of not afraid to take on the giants, but she's also somebody that we've seen on the national stage do fantastic speeches. So she really has a combination of skills, Bill. And from a communication standpoint, she's about as good as it gets. I, I know there was a big deal made of, of the idea that she went after Biden in the first debate last summer, which and, and I, I never put much credence to that. That's what happens in in those debates. I mean. Look, do you remember there how many Republicans were going after Donald Trump when he ran four and a half years ago? And, and now they're all in bed with him. I mean, you know, the Lindsey Grahams and Mitch McConnells, they said some terrible things. They were true, but some terrible things about Trump back in those days. That's politics. It is. And I think what it says is not only that she was not afraid to go after the front runner with something that was deeply personal to her. And she said, when she made that comment you're referring to, she said, I do not believe that you are a racist. You talk about people who made their li- their careers based on being racist, and you supported policies that impacted me as a little girl. And, you know, and then she said, I was that little girl. And so it was very powerful. It was very personal. And you know, she made her point without um, unnecessarily trying to wound Biden. She was making a point, and it was valid. And what I appreciated is that Biden was able to take that criticism, maybe learn from her perspective as, as that little girl who was being bussed, right? And he decided that he wanted her in the room. And you'll recall that Obama let Biden always be the last word in the room. And he's giving that same power to Kamala, saying, I want you to be the last opinion that I hear. So that, to me, talks about strength. And it's one more point of juxtaposition or differentiation between Trump, who obviously is very thin-skinned, cannot handle especially strong women to biden who's saying you know this strong woman really embarrassed me on the national stage for the world to see but she had a point and i respect her for saying it and and i think that just sends an incredible message about what it is to actually be a strong man is that you can work with a strong woman and you're not afraid to be challenged well, Trump also seems to have a real bone to pick with Kamala Harris because of, as you mentioned, what he she did in those Senate hearings. I mean, Brett Kavanaugh was in tears uh, during her questioning of him, and we saw Barr stumbling all the way through this as well. I mean, that that's that's indicative of the fact that she's not intimidated by anybody in situations like this. Uh, and and I know that in the speech they made the other day in Wilmington, uh, they both alluded to the fact that look at you know they're going after her. I mean, they're already after Joe. We know that, but they're going after Kamala. But And we knew that was going to happen, Laura, but did you expect the birther thing to come up again? Well, it's interesting, right, because Trump only has so many tricks in his bag, and he started with the first the nasty woman sexist stuff, 
But then immediately on Twitter, nasty woman was trending, and <laughs> people like myself were like, I wish I could be as nasty a woman as Kamala Harris. In other words, it backfired. People were like, please, you do not get to do that with her. She's not nasty. She's fantastic. And, and maybe he's just, as I said, uh, people have just taken the word and said, okay, if you're going to say that a powerful woman's a nasty woman, we all aspire to be nasty women then. So, I mean, Trump... When he did those things initially, they had a shock value years ago against Hillary Clinton. But with this, everybody expected it. As Joe Biden said, you could set your watch to it. And then when that, I think, didn't have any traction because, you know, people just love Kamala. They don't care about his sexism and his opinion of her. Then they tried to discredit her. And I read the article by the lawyer. That was I couldn't believe that Newsweek published it, but they did. And now they have a little you know, caveat up about why they published it. But it's basically saying, yeah, she was born in Oakland, but technically were her parents citizens at the time? Were they naturalized citizens? You know, were they on the ground at the time? And even though you could, I suppose, dig through and look for case, you know, constitutional amendments that might have some language that might be open to some sort of, you know, interpretation of that, the fact is that in America, how, and it was, it was uh, well said this morning on Morning Joe when, when one of them said, you know what, by that definition, I wouldn't be an American. You know, my parents are immigrants, but I was born here. And so they're, they're, what they're trying to do is grasp at straws. It's racism, pure and simple. You know, when have you ever heard that argument made against somebody who wasn't racialized, who was running for high office in the United States? It's, it's pure racism. And, I, and when that came out, I think people looked at it and said, you know, 10 years ago, this Donald Trump guy was questioning, looking for a birth certificate, made it into kind of like a game show kind of thing, kind of like if you remember Geraldo when he was going to unveil the vault, you know, yeah, he was yeah. doing that with the whole birther thing. Uh, it turned out, of course, to be nothing. But for him to try it with Kamala, I don't think we're surprised, but I think now we've learned and we need to just call it right out and say, listen, it's racism. That article by that lawyer, uh, you know, it, it's, a, it's a pitiful attempt at trying to sow doubt in Americans' minds about her ability to both be vice president, but also her, she, you know, she's an American, and they can't take that away from her. And the fact that they're trying to is despicable. You mentioned about uh, Trump's limited bag of tricks, and one of the ones that he was trying before they made the announcement about Kamala uh, was the, the old, he loves to put nicknames on people. As a matter of fact, I heard uh, uh, Kamala was mentioning it, Kamala Harris was mentioning it, and a couple of the other ones validated this. When Biden was vetting all of those potential candidates, one of the questions he asked was, what nickname do you think Trump's going to give you if you have the choice? Uh, which, which sounds almost comical if it wasn't tragic. Uh, but, you know, they, he was Sleepy Joe. That's what Trump always referred to him as Sleepy Joe. But that never caught on. It just, the, the public didn't grab onto that. Not like Dirty Hillary or whatever she he tried to use four years ago. But what I find unusual about that, because the, the Sleepy Joe thing didn't work and some of the other stuff he said about Biden, they're now focusing on the vice presidential candidate. And that's highly unusual. It's, it's, it's not even the ticket. It's her that they seem to want to focus on now. Well, because they can't, nothing will stick to Biden. I mean, uh, Joe is the Joe you know. You know, we know who Biden is. We know his gas, We know his history. We know his compassion. We know his legislation. So how are you going to brand somebody who's already so well-branded in the minds of the people? You know, Joe is an institution of the Senate. Uh, he was vice president. We know what Joe's all about, and we know what the Biden Joe, uh, what uh, the Biden Obama years produced. Whether you like them or not, we it's on the record. Kamala would be someone a little bit easier to define because she's not as well known. But the thing with Kamala, though, is that she is so good at striking back. You know, sometimes with Hillary, 
she she had some disdain for the media and didn't really love the whole campaigning thing and wasn't really into those kind of scraps. But Kamala Harris absolutely is. When she came out with her speech, which I thought was one of the best vice presidential speeches I've heard because it introduced her and made her completely relatable. And then she, you know, she pursued the indictment against Trump and she did it brilliantly. But one of the things that Kamala said, Bill, was she said, like everything else he's inherited, he took the Biden-Obama economy and ran it into the ground. I mean, for her to go right at Trump and his business record and, you know, how he got into power versus her earning it on her own, I thought that was incredibly, probably damaging to him in, in the sense that she will make that case that, you know, he couldn't even take something good and sustain it. And so uh, I think that he cannot define her the way he wants to because she won't let him. It's interesting when she made that comment, and the minute I heard that, it, it harkened back, it reminded me of Mary Trump's book, uh, because what Kamala Harris was saying there, she was not just talking about Trump, the president, and, and policy. She's going all the way back, all the failed businesses. And she, you know, and, and that's one of the course of the, the focuses of, uh, of Mary Trump's book, is that this guy's been a failure all his life. His father bailed him out with billions and billions of dollars, not the $1 million loan that Trump seems to try to per- perpetuate these days. That's what happened. Uh, and that, that book and a, and a number of other books, I think, have painted Trump in a much different picture. Maybe not for his core. Uh, they're always going to believe what they want to believe. They'll believe the racism, the birther stuff, and everything else. But a lot of people voted for him four years ago. They vote just didn't like Hillary Clinton. Uh, they weren't Republicans necessarily. And a lot of people didn't vote at all. But I think there's a different attitude this year. And I think what's really important uh, that we haven't talked about in terms of a trait of the candidates of the ticket is that Kamala Harris has humor. You know, she, Hillary did have some humor, but Kamala regularly laughs, you know, and she will laugh in the face of any stupid name meant to define her. And she will approach, she approaches this really as a happy campaigner, right? She's a happy warrior. So is Joe Biden. I mean, the two of them laugh regularly. Trump doesn't laugh. One of the things that we've learned and that he has said himself, he doesn't joke. He has no sense of humor. So you ha- and, and I would, you know, Mike Pence hardly seems to have a lot of humor either. He's going on right now about how the Biden-Harris ticket is going to take America's meat away, right? Because she happens to like vegetarian. Yeah, they, they hate, they, apparently they hate cows. Right, right. You know, they're, they're grasping at straws. But the point is, is that on the one side, you have a humorless ticket. And on the other side, you have uh, two people who enjoy this, who believe that they can make a difference who want to take the fight on, uh, and they're going to do it with, I think, a kind of joy. It sounds crazy in these terrible times, but I think we really need that joy. I mean, one of the things that I saw when she was announced on the ticket wasn't just whether or not people liked Kamala or not, or if they had preferred somebody else in the, as the vice uh, president's pick. It's that people felt hopeful. They felt lighter. They felt like for the first time, maybe in a couple of years, I mean, we haven't even talked yet about what Trump's now admitting he's trying to do, by making the post office unable to deliver mail-in ballots during a pandemic. I mean, he is, he's literally saying he does not want this election to be able to happen because he knows he's going to lose. I mean, that's effectively what he's been communicating the last 24 hours. He doesn't care. He's going to try to stop himself from losing. And so, on the other hand, you've got this, this, uh, these two people, Kamala and Biden and Joe, who are, who are lighthearted in a way and, and have humor. And I think that Americans are going to... Obama used the audacity of hope. He used that appeal to hopefulness. Uh, and we've seen that in the past with Reagan, you know, the shining city on a hill, morning in America, all of that stuff. So I think what we're seeing here is the juxtaposition between a hopeful ticket with a sense of humor uh, and some lightness and a very dark ticket that is going to try to really get this election one way or another. And I think it's causing a lot of fear and anxiety. And, and Americans, I would imagine, like many of us, 
don't want any more anxiety. You know, we're already in a pandemic. We're in a recession. We'd really like to have some optimism and some hard work and some truth. And I, and I think that that's a powerful juxtaposition. And I think Trump should be very concerned. Laura Babcock, president of Power Group. Uh, I, yeah, I wanted to get into the mail thing, but we'll have to do that another time. Uh, thanks so much for this. Have a great weekend. We'll talk again soon, Laura. My pleasure. Take care. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.